listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. Today we're in Romans chapter 5. I told Brother Ken, I said, out of any passage of Scripture that I'm getting to preach out of the book of Romans, this is my favorite. Uh, actually, this is my favorite passage in all of Scripture. As Romans 5, 1 through 11. I, I love every word in this passage. Not that I'm not excited about all the word, but it's just something very special about this. So it's an honor for me today to be able to preach passage that I'm so passionate about. And so I just want to read Romans 5, 1 through 11, and then we'll just, we'll jump in and see what, what it has for us today. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and God, there's so much, Lord, in these few verses. But God, I am so thankful that I have peace, and I have hope, and God, I can rejoice. And Lord, just knowing that you uh, loved me, God, when I was your enemy. And God, you sent your son to die, uh, Lord, for me and for all of us. Uh, God, I'm thankful today that I can stand before you, uh, having been forgiven and justified, uh, Lord, knowing that I am now one of your children. And so, God, help us today, Lord, to live in the fact that we do belong to you, that, God, we uh, have uh, eternal security in who you are and what you have done for us. God, I pray that if there's someone in here today who does not know you as their personal Savior, God, that today you would speak into their hearts, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would convict them, and God, that they would see their need for a Savior, and Lord, they would bow to you in repentance, and God, that today would be their day of salvation, and God, in this service would be their time. And so, God, I'm just asking you to do something great in here today, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name, amen. And so the title of the message today is, So, What's New About You? And that's a, that's a question that oftentimes people ask when they're feeling kind of awkward in meeting someone for the first time. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, Hey, so uh, what's new about you? It's kind of this exchange to kind of break that weird, that, that breaking the ice mentality. And sometimes we can be like, What do you even mean? 
And really for a man, it's like, what's new about you? And it's really, they're asking you, well, so what do you do for a living? So how, how, you know, but we like new things. We, we like to have new things. We like to see new things in new places. And here's the cool thing. The Bible says that whenever we're saved, that we're transformed, that old things pass away and behold, all things become new. So this question, what's new about you? Whenever you're saved and forgiven and you have been transformed, it brings in a new way of life or a new life. It brings in a totally new life. The Bible says that God does away with the stony heart and he puts in a heart of flesh. And so we're new. And we go from what we have up here, ruin to redemption. And so all the way up to this point in, in Romans, the first three chapters, especially the, the biggest part of those, is God telling us through Paul of how really bad we are, how sinful we are, how much we need a savior. And it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from. We are all sinners in need of a savior. And so he points that out. He defines the sinfulness of man and who we are without him. And then in chapter four, we kind of go into this thing. I kind of picture it as like being in prison in this deep, dark dungeon. The first three chapters reminding us of how bad we are, how we're captive by sin. And then chapter four, it begins to talk about faith. It begins to talk about being justified by faith. And it starts with Abraham and kind of walks through and it comes down to we all are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And so in that prison, in that dark moment, it's all all of a sudden, like as we begin to talk about faith, you begin to see little rays of light coming into the darkness. You are running from God. You are an enemy of God. You don't even like God. And all of a sudden you're in this dungeon and little bitty lights start kind of flashing in. You're thinking, man, if I can, if I believe and have faith in who he is and what he's done, then, then there's hope. And then when you get to chapter five, for me, it's like all of a sudden the walls come down, the doors come open and the light just flashes in. Because for the first time we truly see how much God loves us. And what he did to prove that love for us. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. We are today accepted in the beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted at the bar of God. We are now pardoned. Even now our sins are put away. Even now we stand in the sight of God accepted as though we had never been guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is not a sin in the book of God, even now against one of his people. Who dares to lay anything to their charge? There is neither speck nor spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing remaining upon any one believer in the matter of justification in the sight of the judge of all the earth. This is who we are in Christ. And so there's a few things in this passage that I just want to talk about today that if you are in Christ, if you have been justified by Christ, 
then these are some things that should show. These are some things you have now in your life. The first thing is an incomprehensible peace. Notice what it says in verse 1. Therefore, having been what? Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the peace that truly passes all understanding. Because why would a God that is holy, that is just, be at peace or desire to be at peace with me who is a sinner who has hatred toward God. So whenever I have peace with God, not the peace from God, but the peace with God, it's the idea that we are at odds with God. Now, the word justified means simply to acquit, to set free, to remove guilt. And so once that is done, justified through faith, it says we have peace it literally means that we have it, we own it, we possess it, it belongs to us. We have peace with God. So why is that important? Well, in Romans 1.18, it talks about, I want to read this, that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's wrath is revealed and we are at God, odds with God. We stand. And I know still sometimes we have a hard time accepting these things, but we stand in defiance of God. And I think of it this way. God is holy and just and I am sinful and, and against Him and I am standing in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And this is why these first few words are so important to us in this passage of Scripture, because we'll sometimes separate God's wrath from God's power. It's like, here's God's wrath, but do we ever take time to stop and comprehend the power that is behind His wrath? And so as I was preparing for this, I was thinking, God, where's your power just so uh, evident in the Bible, and it was like, turn to Genesis 1, Matthew. Because for like 26 chapter verses, it's like, and God said, and God said, and God said, let there be. And God just, as every time God says something, something happened. And, and just to bring that into a little bit of perspective of how amazing his power is, is that it is said that in our a galaxy alone, there's 200 billion stars, and on any given night, clear night, we can see 40 millionth of those stars. And it's estimated that we are one of 50 million galaxies. And so here is God that the Bible says in Isaiah has taken time to name all of the stars, and we have 200 billion alone in our galaxy. And God just said, let there be. Now, to bring it into a little more perspective, if you and I decided we wanted to count to one billion, the estimated time that it says to count to one billion is 95 years. Now, some people say 77, some say 95. You get the picture. You're not going to live long enough to do it because that is counting consecutive. That's not stopping and taking a break and sleeping and napping. So you can think, well, I could do it. So you start off one, two, you know, three. Yeah, that's cool. What about when you get to like 
$25,475,362. And you're like, man, that took a little time. You can get in a well, 300, you know, you know what I'm saying? 95 years it would take for you and I just to count to a billion and God said, let there be, and it was 200 billion in one galaxy, 50 million galaxies. You get the picture. The power that is behind God's wrath is absolutely overwhelming, incomprehensible to the mind. With his words, he said, let there be. This is the God that Paul is talking about that we have peace with in the Bible. And how do we have this peace? It says through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is He that has given us this peace. It's He that we can stand in confidence of. It's He that can keep us from slipping. So we can stand here today and say we have Peace. If you've been saved today, you can stand firmly on the promise that you have peace with God and you will no longer have to face the wrath of God. So the first thing is that it is an incomprehensible peace. But he goes on and he says, through whom, verse 2, also we have access by faith into this grace in which what? We stand. So it's an unshakable foundation. The access is granted to us on the basis of our faith, but also on the the reality that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil was torn in two. Before that, the Jews could only go into the into the temple courts, into the holy place, but they along, they weren't even allowed to go into the holy of holies. And then if you were a Gentile or a woman, you had to be on the outer courts. And there was a sign that reminded you that if you cross this line, you will die. So the best that we could have ever done was stood on the outside looking in. But because Jesus came and he tore the veil, we now do not have to stand waiting on somebody to go in for us or on the outside wondering how amazing God's presence is. We have access to God and we see Jesus. And the word stand means to be firm and to be well established and to remain. Where do we stand? In the grace of God. That's a good place to be. It's in the grace of God. This grace that we stand is a transforming, empowering, preserving grace. It is God's infinite power no longer against us, but now for us. And we live in that power. We live in that grace. Really what happens is, is in the church, we have a tendency to cheapen that grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he just unloads the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. I just want to share a little bit of it with you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. 
And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought with the price. And what has it cost God? Much cannot be cheap for us. If it costs God this, it shouldn't be cheap for us is what he's saying. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So are you standing today on cheap grace or are you standing on a foundation that was built with the cost? I choose to stand on costly grace. Because that's the grace that gives us the firm, unshakable foundation. And then the third thing is hope. An undeniable hope. Notice what it says at the end of 2. It says, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And then he says this in five, now hope does not disappoint. Here's the thing is, so many people say, well, tribulations bring hope. That's really not the case because the Bible says that hope became before the tribulations. We have hope in Christ Jesus. Now what happens is tribulations build on that hope and causes that hope to increase. The Christian life starts with hope through the work of Christ for us and in us. And it goes on more and more as we experience the work of God in our lives. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may what? Abound in hope. So it's hope first and hope last. It's this hope that doesn't disappoint. If you think about the Bible, think about people who went through things. Abraham and Isaac. Would you say there was hope there? I mean, Abraham's fixing to kill Isaac. Hope. Joseph in the dungeon. Hope. Right? Uh, if you keep going. Moses in Egypt. Hope. David's songs in the night. Hope. John on the Isle of Patmos. Hope. Peter would tell you it was hope. And you and I, as we navigate this crazy world, this uncertain time that we're in, what we can stand on is the hope of Jesus Christ. That same hope that brought you into salvation and give you a hope for eternity is the same hope that will sustain you during this life that you're living in. And that hope does not, it says, does not disappoint. Why does it not disappoint? Because I'm not hoping in things that will flee. I'm not hoping in things that will pass away. I'm not hoping in things that will one day burn up. I'm hoping in a person named Jesus Christ that one day we will see face to face and we will spend all eternity worshiping him and being in his presence. That's why the hope we have in Christ does not disappoint. Come on. I'm sweating. I don't know about y'all. Hot to me. This word kind of makes me hot. It's just now getting good, though, because we're fixing to really get into the love of God. I just wanted to break you in with the first three. The fourth thing is an inexhaustible love. 
Notice what it says in ver- at the end of verse 5 or in the middle. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, and that's good right there, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some woman even dare to die. But God, that's those good but God things in the Bible, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The most overwhelming truth to me in all of Scripture would be the fact that God loves a sinful, fallen, rebellious humanity so much that he gave his son. It wasn't just God saying, I love you. It was God saying, I will prove my love for you in the giving of my one and only son. And the idea of this poured out is the idea of gushing. If you've ever been to the ocean, if you've ever been caught up in a wave that you can't get out of, it just keeps rolling over top of you and it just rolls you and you're wondering if I'm ever going to get out. Anybody ever been in that? That's the love of God. It just says it just continues. It just covers you and it gushes over you. And you can't get away from the love of God. It's not a drip, drip, drop kind of love. It's a tidal wave. It's not just dripping every now and then and and, and making you feel good. It's a tidal wave that rushes over us. And he says, that's why hope doesn't disappoint, because God's love has been poured out, has been lavished on us. Where does that happen? Verse 6, it says, for when we were still without strength, in due time, the love of God culminates at the cross. God put his love on display for all the world to see. This is kind of the way this, in due time, this is what it really looks like. We send out invitations, right? Where It's an invitation to a birthday party, whether it's an invitation to a wedding. We send out invitations. And really what that boils down to is we want to celebrate the people we love. And we want the people that, that we love to celebrate in this special moment with us. So we'll send out an invitation to a, a, a child's birthday or we'll send out an invitation to a wedding and it's us going, hey, we want to show you what, how much we love this, the, this person or this couple and we want to share that love with you. And the word in due time is simply this. God sent out an invitation. For special moments, he sent out an invitation. It's a, it's the idea of a, an event that was foreordained that for him to display his love for us. It's the idea of, of him saying, okay, at this moment, at the right time, my son is going to give his life for you. Now what's interesting about this idea is it doesn't necessarily mean it's a convenient time, but it's done out of necessity. I can't think of any time of giving up your child for a bunch of sinful people to be convenient. But he did it out of necessity because if he didn't do it, there would be no hope for you and me. So God did just that. 
In a certain time, in a certain place, God ordained this to happen at the cross. So it's like God reaching all the way back to Adam and reaching all the way forward in the future. And at the cross of Calvary, he pulls all of humanity together, all of history together. And he says, here's the invitation I'm sending out to you. And it's that you see how much I love you. And I'm going to display it on a place called Calvary. I'm going to display it through my son, Jesus. I'm going to display it through his sacrifice that I love you much and there's an invitation for you and what I love about the invitation is it's not an exclusive invitation it's an invitation that goes out to the brokenhearted the suffering the tax collectors the adulterers the murderers the prostitutes the church members the grandparents the parents the men women boys and girls it's an invitation that goes out to every color every tribe every tongue and every nation and that invitation still stands but the question is going to be are you going to respond and show up at the cross? It's an inexhaustible love that at the right moment, he said, here it is. I want to display it. And if you have ever been saved, you understand what it means whenever it says he poured it out on you. So the guest list is everybody in this room today. And it is there. In due time, at the cross, that an infinite God displays His inexhaustible love for us. Next thing is an unfathomable ransom. Notice what verse 9 says. Verse 9 is is a really neat verse. Because you just, you read... uh, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, you're thinking, man, that's pretty amazing. I mean, that's awesome. The fact that God loves me that much, that he did that, he allowed that, he delivered his son, the Bible says. And then Paul says, but much more than, and that means that you had heard nothing yet. What it says, you just thought that was good. He says, but just hold on a second. And he says this, much more than having now been justified by his blood, Jesus, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What some people try to do is they try to take this verse and try to make it sound like that we are enemies of God, but God is not our enemy. And that's not the way it reads. It says, for when we were enemies. You got to understand something. We are at war. Whenever we are not saved, whenever we are living as sinners, we are an enemy of God. So it's the idea of we're rebels. And because we're rebels, we're at war. Because we are living in sin, there is a side of God that is wrath. And there's a God side of God that is just. And that, that He pours out His wrath. And so there's the reason this is such a, a mind-blowing thing is that why would God deliver his son up for his enemies? 
So how does God or how does God's enemies avoid wrath? It's through the death of his son. It's through the blood of Jesus. It's because of Jesus's blood that was shed on the cross that you and I today can stand before him justified. Look at it this way. We are enemies of God. And the God I spoke of in the first point about that says, let there be. And there's all of this just takes place. He took nothing. There was nothing to create. And he spoke it into existence. And it happened. And so all of that power being poured out on us. And if we don't accept the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus on our behalf to ransom us, it would be like us taking a Q-tip to a nuclear war. We're going to try to defend ourselves with all that power but just something as minimal as a Q-tip. And the reality is, is he made a way. This is terrifying. Today in here, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're not in a neutral thing with the Lord. You're in a position of terror because if you die today, God's wrath will be poured out on you. And there is nothing you can do to defend it. Yet he has shown his love for you through the death of his son and the shedding of blood of his son. God has reached into your prison and through the blood of his son unlocked the shackles and the chains and the door so that you could walk out free, not guilty, never heard of again the sin that you committed. That's why it's unfathomable. That's why it's so amazing. Jesus, you can think of it this way. You are at war with God and Jesus stands in the way. God's wrath to be poured out on mankind. Jesus is standing there. The cross is standing there. Calvary is standing there. The resurrection is standing there. The blood of Jesus stands between us and God's wrath. I want to read something to you out of Hebrews that just kind of explains what this, what the blood of Jesus really did for us. Hebrews 9 11 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and of calves, but his own blood. He entered into the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus offered his blood on our behalf so that we could be ransomed. So that we could be justified. And it doesn't make sense. Why? But he did it. A.W. Tozer says, God could quiet, justly have abandoned us to our faith. He could have left us alone to reap the fruit of our wrongdoing and to perish in our sins. If it is what it is what we deserve. But he did not. 
Because he loved us, he came after us in Christ. He pursued us even to the desolate anguish of the cross where he bore our sin, guilt, judgment, and death. And it takes a hard and stony heart to remain unmoved by love like that. Your ransom has been paid for. My ransom's been paid for. Everything that was against me, Jesus paid for it. And because I believed it in faith, I now stand justified before God, counted righteous as one of his own children. So that leads to the last thing. It says that not only that we that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received. The reconciliation. What's new is we should have an immeasurable joy. We've been reconciled. Have we become so comfortable and so satisfied in the church that we don't wrap our minds around the idea that we have been reconciled to God? I don't have to stand before God guilty. I am in a love relationship with him. He looks at me, the Bible says, as his beloved. He has adopted me. He's chosen me. He has predestined me. He loves me. He's given me an inheritance. He's done all of this for me. And sometimes in the church, we just sit around and think, God, you should have done that for me but that's not the case the case is is that we should be rejoicing that he even cares enough about us and loves us enough that he would send his only begotten son so that you could be saved out of your sins and from his own wrath man we should rejoice we should be happy we should be excited and I know the old excuse, well, I just don't, I, you know, I just don't show much emotion. Stop lying. Because you do. If you love something, if you love somebody, you show emotion. If you don't believe me, have a grandbaby. Forget the children. They're good, but they're not that good. I'm just kidding, y'all. I'm just kidding. I mean, really, we get excited. We rejoice in all of these things. And he says, hey, and not only that, but we also rejoice. I see this, man, when we go overseas and people truly wrestle with salvation because they know that when they get saved, that their families are going to disown them, that they're going to be cut off from being able to buy goods and do things. And they realize that once they get saved, that their life, if they know it, is going to come to an end. Not that they necessarily die, but everything and everybody that they love and been around could be gone. But it's amazing to watch them wrestle with that. And whenever they get on their knees and they ask Jesus to save them, they don't get up pouting. They're excited that God loved them enough to send somebody to tell them about him. So we should be excited. We should rejoice in the fact that we're reconciled. This is reason to worship. There is no reason why we shouldn't spend our lives worshiping, going, God, I'm not going to wait till Sunday morning when the countdown ends. God, I'm going to worship you every day, every time I get up, all throughout the day and every night when I go to bed. God, I hope if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm still worshiping you. It's a reason to worship. 
It's a reason to surrender. Nobody else ever loved you like Jesus. Nobody else ever cared for you like he does. And the reality is, if somebody loves you and cares for you that much, we should be like, God, whatever you want me to do with my life, whatever the cost, I'll do it because of your love for me. We should leverage our lives. God, use me wherever you want to, however you want to. We should glorify his name. The Bible says, in everything that I do, it should be for the glory of God. Because here's the reality, y'all. If you claim Christian, you cannot detach yourself from Jesus. So you can't be Christian today and not Christian tomorrow. So everything we do is to glorify the name of Jesus. Do we fail sometimes? Absolutely. But it should be a goal. And here's why I'm no longer without strength. I'm no longer with be a captive. I'm no longer in prison. It really is the gospel. This passage really is the gospel. It is God sending his son to ransom his enemies so that we can be forgiven and adopted so that we can walk out free and clear of any charges that were ever against us. We have a reason to rejoice. And in closing today, this is God's word. This is what he meant for us to read. This is what he left for us. People say, well, I got a new revelation. No, you didn't. It's right here. This is it. You get illumination by the Holy Spirit. If you want to know who you are in Christ and where you stand, you got to get in this word right here because this is God screaming at you in love. And so this is God's word, and God wants to, you to leave this room today more confident, more assured, more hope-filled, more stable and firm than any other time in your life. And he gave his son just so you could be reconciled to him and you could be his friend. Amen. And this is what you can walk out of here today with. You can walk out of here today with peace. You can walk out of here today standing in grace. You can walk out of here today with a hope that doesn't disappoint, a love that you can't outrun, a love that you can never exhaust. You can walk out of here today ransomed, your sin debt paid, and you can leave here today filled with joy, truly unspeakable and full of His glory. So you have a decision to make. God, am I going to rejoice? Am I going to live my life for you as a believer? God, am I going to follow you wholeheartedly? And if you're here today and you've never been saved, you have a choice to make today. God, if you're speaking to my heart through your word, what are you going to do? Are you going to come and repent and believe in faith and be justified by that faith? Are you going to walk away so often as many do, grieved and brokenhearted? One thing you won't walk out of here today knowing is you will know that He loved you even when you were at your worst. And He proved that love for you. What will you do today? What's new about you? Father, we come to you today and 
God, I'm thankful for who you are. God, I'm thankful that even, God, while I was a sinner, Christ came and died for me. God, I'm thankful that when I was without strength, God, that Jesus died for me. God, when I was without hope, Jesus died for me. When I was without peace, Jesus died for me. God, thank you. God, I thank you that you have given us an invitation to come to a place and a time where you gave up your son for us. God, I'm thankful today that he's not on the cross. He's not in the grave. God, he's won victory over sin and hell and death and the grave. And today, in this moment, as we are gathered together, he is, as the Bible says, sitting at your right hand, making intercessory prayer for us. God, he's calling out our names to you. So God, today, we praise you for that. This morning, as you'll, if you'll just stay seated, heads bowed, eyes closed. I want them to sing, and if you need to come today, I'll be down here. If you need to grab somebody to come and pray with you, come. We serve a mighty, mighty, amazing, big, loving God. And today, He wants to meet with you face-to-face, heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul. He's proven that to you today through the love. And so as every head bowed, every eye closed, they're going to sing this song. And if you need to come today, you come. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.